0: You're listening to the One Small Bite Podcast with me, your host, David Roscoe. For over a decade, I have built a successful nutrition practice helping thousands of people thrive, nourish their life, and break the cycle of crazy diets. We will take one small bite at a time to transform your health and develop a positive relationship to food. So let's chop the diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. Okay, are you Ready? Let's do this! Hola amigos, and welcome to the One Small Bite Podcast where we bring you anti-diet conversations and topics that help you break free from the shackles of diet culture and weight stigma so that you can build a positive and secure relationship with food, make peace with your body, and learn to live fully. Hi there, I'm your host, David Orozco, Certified Intuitive Eating, Registered Dietitian, Nutritionist, and my practice is Orozco Nutrition, we have an incredible team of health at every size and weight-inclusive, trained, registered dietitian, nutritionist, and therapists that focus on that very anti-diet and compassionate approach. Well, folks, today I am going to start a month-long Movember, a uh, approach to help men's health, since this is the National Men's Health Awareness Month and Movember. And uh, I find this to be very, very important in my life. You know, I was thinking about putting this episode together the other night and I was sitting or lying in bed with my wife and I was telling her, boy, you know, I've been thinking a lot about my dad these last few days because of this episode. So just to give you a little background, my father suffered from high blood pressure, high cholesterol, prostate cancer, and he was in a heavy body. He was, uh, unfortunately, he passed away in March of 2018, and um, I was sitting by his bedside while he was taking his last few breaths, and there was nothing that I could do. His um, directives were not to resuscitate him, so it was tough. It was one of those difficult moments, but I, I saw my father suffer through a heart attack, a stroke, and a severe digestive bleed from diverticulosis where he lost almost five pints of blood and had to get transfusions. That was all very scary. And and at the end, that prostate cancer just really took the best of him. So it is in honor of my father that I discuss this episode today because of that prostate cancer. And it also made me wanna to choose to talk to you today about another hero in the book, Jeff. And I wanted to talk to you about him because he he made me think a lot about my dad. And I'm sorry, I get a little choked up when I start talking about this because, you know, I I'm a lot of times I wish I could be half the man that my father is. And my father was an important figure in my life. Very strong man. very devoted man to my mother, uh, had four kids, my three sisters and myself, and he married my mother who was widowed with five. So, by the way, my mother was 10 years older than my father too. So you can imagine the amount of stress, the amount of strain, the difficulties, gosh, I mean, my father was a lawyer, he was extremely well-educated, he spoke three languages, and uh, so when Jeff came to my office, uh, this wasn't too long ago, it was a few years back, and of course I'm I'm not using a real name here, but when Jeff came to my office, he was 48 years old. Now, it was a little different circumstance, he, he wasn't married, he had no kids, he lived alone, but he was in a heavy body. Uh, and one of the things that he had asked me was, David, you know, I looked you up because I saw that you focus more on an anti-diet and an intuitive eating approach and and it intrigued me. Um, but he didn't really say much more than that. He just said, "I just want to know if you work with men like me. And I thought, okay, well, can you give me a little bit more? So Jeff lived alone and he had a full-time job that he really didn't like. And one of the things that really came out the most with Jeff was how lonely he was. This really struck me because Jeff was a really nice guy. I mean, he was quiet. He was definitely introvert, just like my dad. And he was really concerned because he had tried diets in the past. He had tried diets. He had tried weight loss programs. He tried lots of different things in the past, and it just didn't work. Of course, we've talked so much about that, about how diets don't work, so here he is again, had gained a lot of the weight that he had lost and then some, and he was diagnosed with hypertension, and he was worried, and he said to me, David, you know, I'm really worried about my pl- my blood pressure, and I want to try to get it under control, and I just want to lose this weight, but, you know, I've tried multiple times, and I don't know if if I'm doing something wrong, or and so seeing your information about this anti-diet approach, it seemed very interesting to me. So I told him, well, look, I'm not going to use your weight as a measure of the progress of your health. I said, we can definitely use your blood pressure. We can definitely look at maybe ultimately reducing the need for blood pressure medication, although that's not a main goal. But Um, ultimately, I'm I'm not really going to focus on your weight. Now, your weight may decrease because of the work that we're doing, because of the behavior changes that you might make, but I'm not going to focus on your weight. And, you know, at first he was a little defeated and I would imagine you listening to this would think, come on, David, give me a break. I bet you if he loses weight, his blood pressure would improve. And, you know, probably, But we have to look at what's going on. We have to look at a little bit more of those nuances. And by not focusing on his weight, we were able to help him pay attention to what foods and what behaviors were actually causing more of an increase in his blood pressure and his difficulties. And we quickly found out something that, gosh, it it really struck me because Jeff didn't sleep well at night. He had depression he was very lonely. He was at a job that he hated, but he did really well. And so he was paid well. So it was like the golden handcuffs. And uh, there was just a lot of stress through the loneliness too. And I know I'm bringing that up. And if you ever get the opportunity to listen to an episode that I had with my uh, friend, Patrick Bryant, who's a licensed clinical social worker, we talked about the loneliness problem in the United States and how loneliness is a form of stress and that loneliness could exasperate the very stress responses that occur. And I'm gonna to get to stress and sleep in just a little bit when I talk a little bit more about sodium. And so with Jeff, we started working on some small changes that he can make and he started to see some great improvements. His energy improved, His lifestyle improved, his sleep improved, and by the way, he didn't lose much weight. And then he came to the office and he said, here's my food journal. And I asked Jeff, well, why didn't you write down what you had for dinner one day? And he said, hesitated for a minute and then he said, okay, I ended up going to my old pub uh, hangout two nights ago and I had six shots of Jägermeister, about half a dozen chicken wings, and then some pie for dessert. It was just automatic, David. I went there because I just wanted to get away. It was what I used to do after a horrible day at work. So I asked him, "What? well, what happened? He said, I was ready to quit my job. And before I could ask him what he meant, he just broke down. Uh, it took me some time to understand, and, and I let him just compose himself. But I told him to take a few mi- deep breaths, and then we stood up. I told him to shake it off. And we waited some more, then just started to tell me about his day. So, David, I was so nervous about coming here today. I totally knew you were going to ask me about those two nights or the two nights ago. I was doing so good for the last few months, but I just broke down and went to the pub. It was my go-to when shit at work just was unbearable. I had the worst day at work. My boss was such an ass, and he just insulted me and made me feel like a complete idiot at work. He yelled at me in front of several people. What was worse was that I didn't do or say a single word to defend myself or try to reason with him. All right, so what did you do next, I said. He explained that he took the day off. In fact, I took the remainder of the week as PTO, he said, and that was the night I went to my old pub. I was there alone, and I just wanted to drink and eat. It was bizarre. I felt like riding a bicycle. It was just like old habits. I felt like I had this tractor beam, like this mental Jedi mind trick, this hypnotism where I had to go to the pub and and do what I've always done to soothe my pain. It was bizarre because I could see myself do it, but I couldn't break out of it. So then I asked him how he was able to break out of the mental and emotional fog after all. He said, it was right after that last bite, I ordered 20 chicken wings, extra spicy with a side of fries, blue blue cheese dressing for dipping, and then about six wings, I had enough. But it hit me like a ton of bricks. I said, okay, what do you mean? I mean, it was like I was having an out-of-body experience. I felt a hand over my mouth and a little force that just took over my stomach, and I stopped. I didn't want to throw up. I didn't feel sick. I just Felt this need to stop. So I asked him, Well, what happened? He said, It was weird, David. I felt horrible for doing it, but at the same time, I just didn't want to do the food thing again. The food tasted good. I just wasn't enjoying the feeling. In the past, I would just have devoured and almost inhaled the food and alcohol without even skipping a beat, without even thinking about it. So then he stopped. He looked at me, and I could see he realized something. Now, you have to understand that prior to this day, he wasn't very talkative. He said more to me in this one session that he had in the past 10 months. It's interesting because I never know when something's going to click for someone. And sometimes it takes that person to have to go through a rough patch, a difficult experience in life to discover it. Not always, though. Some clients hit those epiphanies through very casual, simple moments in their lives and they, so they accumulate. So what did Jeff realize? He realized that he was not his negative thoughts. He was able to observe himself for the first time, a bit of an outer body of experience. This isn't the way that will help him soothe, he thought. He was not going to do the same thing over again just because he did it before. Jeff was being empathetic with with himself and kind to himself. He realized he didn't need to fall into that same trap Filling his body with more food and alcohol, which might help him not feel the emotional pain a little while, wasn't going to work. He knew that the physical pain he would feel with heartburn, upset stomach, and then all the emotional guilt and shame from eating and drinking wasn't going to help him feel better. Jeff observed for the first time that his mind was filled with some negative with the same negative thoughts. I'm not worth. I'm an idiot at work. I'm not handsome. People hate me and so on. And we started to discover that his blood pressure wasn't a factor of the food he was eating. Yes, we discovered that he would have these moments at that pub, but there was a lot of stress that was going on with his self-narrative. And this is where I really want to bring in that saying from Brene Brown. She states, when we deny the story, It defines us. When we own the story, we can write a brave new ending. And so, this is why I wanted to talk to you today about sodium, sodium guidelines. We really need to end this war on sodium, and we can still improve our blood pressure. So, You know what? Let me back up. Let's take a look at certain guidelines, at the current guidelines and statistics. Now, before I begin, I just really want to give a big shout out to Jennifer Baugh for helping put together some of the great research for this episode. You've heard me talk about Jennifer. She's one of the clinicians at Orozco Nutrition. So, the current dietary guidelines for sodium recommend that we consume less than 2,300 milligrams of sodium for anybody over the age of 13. I'm going to use 2400 for argument's sake because it's a lot easier number to do math with, and I'll get to that in just a minute. What's interesting is that the American Heart Association says or recommends that we consume less than 1500 milligrams of sodium a day. Well, let me just put these numbers into perspective. And just a little warning here, I'm going to throw out more numbers so this might be triggering. I do not want anybody to go out there and start calculating the milligrams of sodium and everything they eat. You will go nuts trying to do that. And I don't want you to go nuts because I'm going to talk about going nuts or really distress in just a little bit and how that contributes to blood pressure as well. So when we look at what the research is showing about the average consumption of sodium in the United States? Well, on average, we're consuming about 3,500 milligrams of sodium. When we break that by gender, and yes, I'm talking about cisgender, binary, male, female. When we talk about genders, what we're seeing in the research is that there's approximately 3,100 milligrams of sodium for women and approximately 4,200 75 milligrams for men. And this comes from the Anne Haynes uh, research. If you're not familiar with Ann Haynes, it stands for the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey from the CDC. And this is a survey that's done nationwide and it's been going on since the late, I mean, excuse me, since the early 70s. And we get about a five-year chunk of this NHANES data and survey. It surveys participants or people around the United States. So it is a very robust set of data points that a lot of researchers use in helping with research projects and uh, studies and looking at populations and certain dietary and nutritional effects that are going on. But let me go back to sodium. If we look at 2,400 milligrams, that's approximately one teaspoon of sodium a day or salt. One teaspoon of salt contains about 2,400 milligrams of sodium. And one teaspoon of salt is, if you can imagine, it's the the tip of your thumb to the first knuckle, that's approximately one teaspoon, roughly speaking. Generally speaking, it's not a whole lot, right? So it's like, wow. Let me also put more into perspective. If the recommendations are to consume 2,400 milligrams or less a day, well, we've got to look at that regarding meals consumed in the day. If we're consuming three meals a day, 2,400 milligrams divided by three meals a day is 800 milligrams milligrams per meal. Well, if we did the 1,500 milligram recommendation from the American Heart Association, that would equate to 500 milligrams per meal. All right, I'm going to get to some food for thought here, okay? So, it's very easy for us to way over consume one teaspoon of sodium or salt a day. When we go to a restaurant like, for example, Subway, and we order a a six-inch sub with turkey and cheese, maybe add mayo and mustard, some veggies on it, um, oil and vinegar, no salt, uh, some chips, and maybe a soda, that one meal is probably going to contain a minimum of sixteen to 1,700 milligrams. If I went to Chick-fil-A, which is a chicken chain restaurant here in the South, and it's growing around the United States, I'm sure many of you know it, Um, but if we go to that restaurant and we order a regular chicken sandwich with a side of fries and a soda, we're consuming about the same, somewhere between 15 to 1,800 milligrams of sodium. Now, sodium is very, very difficult to calculate. But the FDA estimates that over 70% of dietary sodium comes from packaged and prepared foods, whereas only a small portion, about 11%, comes from the salt we add to food. So this is why I wanted to put these numbers into perspective, because when you look at it, it's a little bit more challenging. Now, if we try to reduce our sodium consumption to 23 or 2400 milligrams a day, The problem is that these general recommendations are challenging because they also say that indirectly that we should eat less prepared or packaged, or the key word, the buzzword here would be processed foods. Well, these general recommendations require then us to cook more from scratch. But then can you control the sodium and add other flavors from herbs and spices these start causing some real-world barriers. So, for example, you may have to be savvy with cooking skills in order to prepare foods that have a good amount of flavor without all that sodium or without adding salt. And if you don't have a lot of cooking skills, I think of Jeff. He lived alone. A lot of times he would prepare a sandwich for lunch or would often eat out. And he was never taught to cook. He wasn't very much of a of a cook himself. He would often go out to restaurants at night, partly because he was lonely. And going out to restaurants meant that he wanted to enjoy food out. And so cooking from scratch makes it mandatory to stay home with who? Um, alone? And well, yeah, I mean, if you're an introvert, staying at home alone sounds great. But I bet you many of you gone through the pandemic or introverts have realized how difficult and challenging it is to be alone, even though as an introvert, you really want to do that. We really need human contact, close contact. So this is a challenge to require people to eat less sodium or cook more from home. And the other thing too, the time that it takes to prepare meals from home every single day, that's that's a big challenge. There's also a challenge in procuring some of these foods that would be lower in sodium. They're not always less expensive. They could be sometimes a little pricier than the conventional foods that contain the the average amounts of sodium. So, this puts a lot of earnest on the individual. That's a, That's not fair. That's a challenge. And so, This is why we have to understand the big picture here. This is what's interesting about research. What happens is that a lot of researchers build on a body of research and never really question the original research. They never really look at where the history from something comes from. So then what happens is it starts snowballing. It becomes sort of the understood norm. And then you got a lot of people that say, well, there's a body of research and we can't deny the research. And so this is what the research says. Now, this all comes from in 1972, from Dr. Lewis Dahl, 1972 he showed that evidence that a, a diet high in sodium contributes to high blood pressure. And if we fast forward to 1997, a landmark study came out called a clinical trial of the effects of dietary patterns on blood pressure. And so, this became known as the dietary approaches to, high, to Stop Hypertension, or the DASH study, and this is where we get the DASH diet. So, the approach to this study is that they enrolled 459 adults with systolic blood pressure of less than 160 milligrams of mercury and a diastolic blood pressure of less than 80 to 95. So, that's, that's hypertension right there. So, for three weeks, these subjects were fed a controlled diet that was low in fruits, vegetables, and dairy products with a fat content typical of the average diet in the United States. They were then randomly assigned to receive for eight weeks, and I want to emphasize this, for eight weeks, the control diet, a diet rich in fruits and vegetables, or what they call a combination diet rich in fruits, vegetables, and low-fat dairy products with a reduction in saturated and total fat. Here is the catch: sodium intake and body weight were maintained at constant levels. And so, what did they? What did they find? They found that there was, especially with people that had blood pressure of 140 over 90 or higher, the combination diet reduced both the systolic and diastolic blood pressure, by 11.4 and 5.5 milligrams of mercury, respectively. That is huge. That is a big amount. Among the 326 subjects without hypertension, the corresponding reductions were minimal. There are 3.5 and 2.1, respectively, systolic and diastolic. So, it's interesting I want to emphasize something here because you've heard me talk about studies before. They enrolled 459 adults. 326 subjects were without hypertension. So we didn't see a big improvement. So what they were looking at was not the total 459 adults, but only the difference, which was the remaining 133 participants. Okay, wait a minute. Let's back up here a second. 133 participants that had high blood pressure. The, let me tell you again that this was the landmark study. This was where the DASH diet came about. I want to emphasize something that's very important here. We're not looking at the statistical significance of 459 people. We're looking at the statistical significance of 133 people. Now, yes, there was a reduction in the 326 people without hypertension, but it was a small improvement, 3.5 and 2.1 milligrams of mercury, uh, respectively, systolic and diastolic. So, wow, okay, we don't hear about that. Here's the other thing, and I'm going to quote from the study, conclusion, a diet rich in fruits, vegetables, and low-fat dairy foods and with reduced saturated and total fat can substantially lower blood pressure. This diet offers an additional nutrition approach to preventing and treating hypertension. Okay, <laughs> did you hear that? A diet rich in fruits, vegetables, low-fat dairy foods, and with reduced saturated and total fat can substantially lower blood pressure. I'm sorry, I said it, I read it twice, I saw it twice, I read the study about four times, and did, I did not see where the reduction in sodium was the indicator here. Now, they did go on to stipulate and say that there was a reduction in sodium uh, in the, the control diet that was prescribed. And so, this was a little bit more complicated because the number of participants that was off. The methodology at the very beginning, they actually stipulated that sodium intake and body weight were maintained at constant levels. So that means that these people were just consuming weight more fresh fruit, more vegetables, low fat dairy, less saturated fat, less total fat. So we don't hear that kind of stuff. We don't hear the number of subjects. Again, one other thing that I want to point out they were only on this diet for eight weeks. This is important because if you are doing something for eight weeks, you're probably going to see some good adherence, meaning people sticking to the diet. You'll probably see some great results, the results that you're probably looking for, which does create a bias. And the problem too here is that the eight weeks is not really conducive to long-term longitudinal studies. Now, this is interesting because when we do look at long-term or longitudinal history, what's interesting is we start seeing something a little bit different. I'm gonna pull an article from the Journal of the American Medical Association published in 2017 that stated the DASH diet 20 years later. And I'm going to just quickly quote this. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the publication showing the blood pressure lowering effects of the dietary approaches to stop hypertension, DASH diet. The DASH diet is considered an important advance in nutritional science. Really? (laughs) It emphasizes foods rich in protein, fiber, potassium, magnesium, and calcium such as fruits and vegetables, beans, nuts, whole grains, and low-fat dairy. Well, I don't know about beans, nuts, whole grains. I mean, the author just did talk a little bit about that, but in any case, I digress. It also limits foods high in saturated fat and sugar. Um, Well, I don't know about the sugar other than the fact that We didn't talk much about desserts, or the study doesn't talk much about desserts. DASH is not a reduced sodium diet. Okay, I'm going to say this again, and I quote, DASH is not a reduced sodium diet, but its effects is enhanced by also lowering sodium intake. Did you hear that? The study continues with, yet adherence to the DASH on a national level is poor. A decade-old an analysis of the data from the, from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Surveys that I told you a little, while about, a little while ago, Anne Haynes, showed that less than 1% of the population was fully adherent to DASH from 1988 to 2004. Okay, so this study was in 1997. Uh, the Anne Haynes study looked at 1998 to 2004 data, so there's a little discrepancy there, not much. Well, okay, here's something that's really, really important. They said that the population was not fully adherent. That's a little bit othering. That's a little bit putting the blame on the individual. And I'm going to go on because I'm going to tell you how important this is. Because there are a lot of calls to action to improve blood pressure or lower blood pressure the American Heart Association reports a call to action. So, a lot of organizations are saying, let's lower blood pressure because it leads to about, oh, anywhere from 54% of stroke and 47% of coronary heart disease events. But what leads to high blood pressure? Is it just sodium Or is it more of a variety of different factors? Like, for example, with Jeff, his sleep was a major issue here. He also had severe depression, and quite frankly, he was lonely. Loneliness is a form of stress. Hands down, it's a form of stress. There are other factors, like sodium sensitivity. I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit. But this is my point about how a lot of other research just really didn't question the original research, and they really built on the same idea, the same concept, when we really have to look at how do we actually follow sodium levels. I'll get to that in just a little bit too. Hold on. So this one study has been the main contributing factor for lowering salt consumption or sodium consumption in the United States or the approach to lower blood pressure. And this DASH diet, this DASH diet along with that European diet that I was telling you about in the Friday Foodcast before, well, these two are the only two diets that have a significant amount of research. And by significant, I really don't mean a whole lot. Because if we continue to look at the data, Heart disease continues to be the number one cause of death in the United States, where over close to 600,000 deaths a year. The next closest would be cancer, and that's somewhere around 500,000. Well, what's really interesting is that the decrease in cardiovascular deaths has only improved by 7%. In other words, there has been a 7% decrease in stroke deaths In the United States. So there has been some improvement. But over the last 20 years, with so many recommendations to lower sodium, we can't keep blaming the individual. Stroke and heart disease deaths are declining, but is it because we are lowering salt consumption? You know, before guidelines are published, an advisory committee is formed to conduct reviews of the research and the data to make available the official guidelines. And so When we look at the answer to that question, long-term observational studies instead often rely on estimated of nutrient intake through food frequency questionnaires, dietary records, 24-hour food recalls, and these are prone to biases. The best way to do that is through multiple 24-hour urine samples. However, that's very challenging for many participants to be able to complete... So even that has a lot of errors. And so it's very difficult to to determine whether it's actually sodium. When we're looking at the DASH diet, is it more that there is a higher consumption of fruit and vegetables, less consumption of eating out? Or are there other factors in life that are gonna determine a person's blood pressure? What's really interesting is when we start looking a little bit further or dive a little deeper into the research, we find something a little bit more interesting a longitudinal study follow-up study of dietary sodium intervention actually showed that there's a significant number of people that fall into three different types of sodium sensitivities. One is a high sodium sensitivity, meaning that a little bit of sodium could affect their blood pressure. Some are at a moderate sodium sensitivity, and some have a sodium resistance, which means that sodium is really not gonna affect their blood pressure. And this is a study published in the journal Hypertension, which came out just this past April in 2021. It's very important that we look at all the other factors that are contributing to cardiovascular risk, high blood pressure, stroke, such as smoking, alcohol consumption, and then there's the social determinants of health. Are people able to get health care? Here's an example. Jeff often avoided going to the doctor because he would hear it every single time. Well, Jeff, you should really try to lose weight. It's not like Jeff hadn't heard that before. And it certainly wasn't like Jeff didn't try. Jeff had tried, like so many clients that I work with, many diets. And he would lose incredible amounts of weight. At one time, he had lost 100 pounds. But it wasn't sustainable. You heard in my last Friday Foodcast episode about unsustainability, one of the seven warning signs of diets for Jeff. It just wasn't unsustainable. And the weight creeped back up easily. So he's heard it before. And the problem is, is that puts a lot of pressure on a person i think i'm emphasizing that quite a bit that put a lot of pressure we're talking about high blood pressure yeah that kind of stress only really alienates people he didn't want to go to the doctor anymore he didn't want to hear it anymore it was the same bs over and over again so we have to look at other factors too like for example was he genetically resistant to sodium was he moderately or did he have a high sensitivity to it Well, you know, oftentimes, as I told you before, he would end up going out to eat and there was a large consumption of alcohol and alcohol was consumed considerably in his life. It was one of his ways of dealing with a lot of the stress and there would be instances where he would go to his local pub, he would sit down and have fried wings and uh, blue cheese and have up to about seven shots of Master. Yeah, (laughs) you know, that is a big contributor to what's going on with a person's blood pressure. But again, I'm not blaming Jeff. I'm not here to say, Jeff, you got to stop drinking. It's because of your drinking that you have high blood pressure. We have to look at why he has to go to a pub, sit at the bar by himself and sort of waste away his sorrows with alcohol. It is not an easy behavior. So there's a huge stigma that is applied by the healthcare industry that it's the person's fault. The access to healthcare by other people is a major contributing factor. If you remember not too long ago in a previous episode, I was talking about how my parents came to the United States. I don't ever remember them having health insurance. The only time they had health insurance was when they reached the age of 65, So social determinants of health is a real factor. The stresses that are involved in people's lives, I'm not just talking about stress here and there. I'm talking about the constant stress, that grind culture, that hustle, I call it the Latin hustle (laughs) in the United States, where people are just trying to make ends meet. That American dream is really not a dream. It's more like a nightmare in many regards. We hear about this: pull your bootstraps up and do it by yourself. And you know, if you work hard and you put in the effort, you'll succeed and get the American dream. Yeah, it may be the case for some people, but at what cost? Well, blood pressure is one of them. I also want to discuss one other thing that is a major contributor to blood pressure, and that is sleep. In fact, in a 2011 study, looked at 475,684 men and women of varied ages, races, and ethnicities across eight different countries. And what they found was short sleep was associated with more than a 45% risk, greater risk of fatal and non-fatal coronary heart disease within 7 to 25 years from the start of the study. A similar relationship was observed in a Japanese study of 2,282 male workers. Over a 14-year period, sleeping less than six hours a night was associated with more than three times greater risk of suffering a cardiovascular or coronary event. It's important that I note that the relationship between short sleep and heart failure remains very strong after controlling for other known cardiovascular risk factors, such as smoking, physical activity, body mass index, and diet. A lack of sleep more than accomplishes its own independent attack on the heart. Let me talk a little bit of what happens in this situation. Usually at night, when we are sleep-deprived, what ends up happening is that through the central pathway an overactive sympathetic nervous system. Now, we got to understand that the sympathetic nervous system is our fight and flight system, whereas our parasympathetic nervous system is our pausing system. And the pausing is necessary to allow the decrease in our sympathetic system. So together with increases in stress-related chemicals called cortisol, we've talked about cortisol before, Sleep deprivation triggers a domino effect that will spread like a wave of health damage throughout your body. It starts with removing a default resting break that normally prevents your heart from accelerating in its rate of contraction. So once the brake releases, you will experience sustained speeds of cardiac beating. Well, what I mean by that is that If we can't tap into that parasympathetic nervous system, which sleep helps us do, especially in the deep non-REM sleep, what we end up getting is a situation where our heart never slows down. So making matters worse, when we have these situations, we have growth hormone. A growth hormone is a great healer of the body, which normally surges at night, It's shut off by a state of sleep deprivation, though. So without this growth hormone to replenish the lining of our blood vessels called the endothelium, they will be slowly worn and stripped of their integrity, which is an insult to the real injury, the hypertensive strain that sleep deprivation places on your vascular nature means that you can no longer repair those fracturing uh, vessels effectively. And that was quoted from the book, Why We Sleep, Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams by Dr. Matthew Walker. So in other words, ouch, not getting that deep REM sleep essentially causes a lot of challenges. I go back to my father. Sleep apnea and difficulties with stress, I remember early on, He ended up having nighttime sleep problems, the same with my mother, and the same was happening with Jeff. Again, I was mentioning how the DASH diet really is focused on the individual and how the individual is to blame, but the food industry hasn't done much to reduce the sodium levels. Now, let me explain something that I think is very important Um, sodium is used by uh, food industry and restaurants because sodium is a natural food preservative. It It is also a flavor enhancer. And it's just one of the best ways that the food industry can get people into their restaurants. You know, we can do more in adding flavor to food without having as much sodium. And so, When we start telling people, you have to cut down sodium, you have to lose weight, what we end up not realizing is that, well, we have to look at the social determinants of health of this individual. Maybe they live in an environment where they don't have a car, or they don't have access to public transportation. And so to get to work, that's an enormous challenge. So getting food, like fresh fruits and vegetables and low-sodium foods and, and uh, low-saturated-fat foods, sometimes this can be quite a challenge, especially if the access to these foods are not there. And so food security is a major component of someone's food choices. Again, I, I think about the conditions that both Jeff and my father lived in, and this is very challenging. I want to throw one other thing. Men typically suffer from something called elixothemia. This is very common in men more so than in women. Elixothemia is essentially the inability to recognize and understand the person's emotional state and therefore how to react to certain environmental cues. Now, generally, it is steeped in masculine culture where we find hypermasculinity or toxic masculinity. And so, think about it. If you hurt yourself, if a man hurts themselves, or if a boy hurts themselves, if they're not bleeding, well, they're okay. So, we're taught, we, us men, are taught to suck in our emotions. Men are usually not very good with their emotional state. It's not to say every guy isn't, but we have explosive reactions to a lot of our emotional situations, or just the opposite, we retreat, we hide into our holes. This still is a stress, and that stress plays havoc on our bodies. So what do we do? What's the takeaway here? Well, I'm gonna tell you the same thing I tell you over and over again. The key here is one small bite. What is it that Jeff did? Jeff essentially started focusing on that self-compassion. He started paying attention to how important it was to observe the way he talked to himself, what he was saying about himself. That was a key. And one of the easiest ways that he found to do that was by actually playing a game. He he would go out and he would play a game of basketball. Now, It wasn't in a basketball court, but he would just take a basketball, and the dribbling created a constant outlet. Here is the best part. It wasn't so much that he needed to do the physical activity. Yeah, that was there, but for Jeff, he found that basketball helped. It helped him pay attention and focus, and it allowed him to flush out some of the ideas. We also then discussed maybe doing it with somebody else or finding a league or finding a team. And he he was really reluctant at first, but he thought, okay, you know what? I am going to go ahead and do that. And little by little, he started realizing how much that time was giving back to him. You know, he started practicing on his own a little bit, just practicing his dribbling. Believe it or not, now that was odd for me because you know, a lot of times people will go to the gym or they'll hire a personal trainer, but no, for Jeff, it was really just dribbling the ball and. He used to love playing it in high school. He enjoyed playing it in college and intramural sports. And that's how he moved forward with that. So for Jeff, it was finding one small thing that was really the key. For you, what can we do from a social standpoint? We can choose lower sodium foods if possible. If that's within your wheelhouse, if that's financially a part of what you can do, I would say absolutely, give it a try. I'm not completely against the idea that sodium doesn't affect people's blood pressure. I think there's a major genetic component. I also think there's a lot of other life circumstances too, but that could be a good way to do that. Another way of really doing it is, I mentioned this before, is find one meal where you're going to have extra fruit and vegetables and go for it. Another would be Maybe start preparing a couple of meals from home every once in a while. And then another one would be start tracking your blood pressure. And another one could be look at ways of reducing the amount of alcohol. If you're smoking, all right, maybe that's the direction to go. And sleep. Maybe it's a matter of sleep. Maybe it's a matter of looking at how much sleep you're getting? What's the quality of sleep? Do you maybe need a sleep study? I've had a couple of episodes with sleep specialists, and I'm going to talk more about sleep in future episodes, so stay tuned for some of that. But sleep can definitely be another good place to to, to head towards. I would also refer you to episode 61 of the One Small Bite podcast with my special guest, Michelle Gooden, registered dietitian-nutritionist at Emory, She talked about the social determinants of health, and she made a great analogy. I uh, really like that. It's a pretty good episode, and that would be a great other place to start. And then lastly, I would say find a trained registered dietitian nutritionist that specializes in an anti-diet weight-inclusive approach. Someone like one of our team members at Orozco Nutrition. I know, shameful plug here, but okay. I think that it's very important because what we end up doing is we focus on that whole person and we look at other variable factors. You know, again, I want to think about my father's situation. I really wish I could have done a lot more. And so if there's one thing that I learned from my father's experience and my experience with my father's health is that I can help with more people just because we want to look at that compassionate, that important empathy and self-kindness approach that is so important for our society. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. I sure really liked all the research. Again, I want to be- give a big thanks and shout out to Jennifer Ball for putting a lot of the research together. I will have the links to the studies and the information in the show notes. So please feel free to visit the show notes at OrozcoNutrition.com. Click on the podcast and you'll see this episode, episode 112. So thank you very much for tuning in. I greatly appreciate you for listening to this podcast. Do me a favor, when you get a chance, go to Instagram and let me know what you think. Tell me what you thought about this episode. On Instagram, I'm at Orozco Nutrition. Or I'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcast, drop us five stars and leave us a review that would really help us get this show out to more people. And when you get a chance, remember, subscribe to the show so you get these episodes downloaded to your device on a regular basis and you won't miss a beat. All right, folks, thank you for tuning in one more time. I appreciate you. And remember, chop that diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. Hasta luego.